So let me start by saying thank you to those of you who told me that I look nice today. <laughs> I will take that as a compliment and not assume that you think I look like a schlub at any other time. But I wonder if you realized what I'm wearing. That would be true. But I'm not wearing it because of the Broncos. <laughs> I am wearing the colors of the logo, the new branding. Yes. I'm kind of that way. I like to do things like that, although this is probably the only time I will do that. <laughs> so my question to you today is maybe you remember something. Some of you, especially the kids, you may know this more recently because it's something that's been something in your life more recent. Some of us may have to think back a ways. Uh, you may be going through it with your kids. But who remembers, maybe you used cards, maybe you just asked the question, but what is four times zero? Or what is three times one? Okay, well I wasn't really asking for the answers, <laughs> but we're talking about the multiplication tables, right? And we all had to do that. I remember doing that in third grade. I don't know if it's still, is it still third grade? Yes, still third grade. Okay, thank you. Um, and I, like many kids, had some trouble with some of those. Obviously, anything times zero is still zero. That was an easy one to remember. The one's very easy to remember. But when they got a little harder, like eight times six or 13 times three, it got a little more difficult. Or maybe it's a different class altogether. It's spelling. It's vocab. Or maybe it's science question like, what is Newton's third law of motion? Like, ah. Uh, just did it, okay. Maybe you can answer it later. Um, but what happens? We tend to get a little nervous because it's a, something that we're not recalling immediately. And, and yet as a parent or as the person who's quizzing the person, you see that, you see that they're trying, they're really working at it. And, and you're thinking, all right, first of all, they gotta calm down a little bit because sometimes when we get anxious, we don't think clearly. All right, so I gotta calm them down, relax, take it easy, maybe we need to take a break. All right, that's fine, five-minute break. But a lot of times what we'll say is, look, you know this. We just went over it the other day. You know this answer. I know you do. And as I was preparing for this message, that was the sentiment I felt that I was reading in Jesus' responses to his disciples here. That first he had to calm them down from being nervous, had her angst ridden, and to help them to remember something that they knew. They already knew. And before we get into the passage and unpack it, let me take a moment to pray. Father, guys, thank you so much for who you are and what it is you're doing in my life and in our lives collectively. I thank you that we have this opportunity that you would call us to yourself and that you would want us to be a part of what you're doing in this world, even though we are broken, even though we sin. Father, I pray and ask that the words that I would speak today would not be mine, but rather they would be yours. That anything that I would say today that is from me would be quickly forgotten, never to be remembered. But those things that are from you, Lord, would be quickened into our hearts and into our minds, finding fertile soil in both places. That as we leave this place today, we leave changed, looking more like your son, Jesus Christ, to a lost and dying world. By the power of the Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So our passage today is John 14, two verses 
or 2 through 14. I need to back up just one verse and steal Brian's last verse from last week and, and start in verse 1 because it, it sets the tone. It helps us to remember where we're going here. And I'm just going to read the first verse here. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now you'll remember from Brian's message that they were, they were concerned, they were troubled, there was fear because he said that there's going to be people that are going to betray me. And they're looking around, who is it? No one wants to think that they were going to be the one to betray Jesus Christ. But then he tells Peter also that you will betray me before the night is out. That would certainly cause angst with any one of us, I would think. You're going to betray me. Me? Never, Lord. We'd like to believe we would say that. Never. And yet, Peter did. The other thing, let me throw a little fuel on the fire to that concern that they have, that angst, that anxiety. Not only is he telling them that he's going to be betrayed, but he's telling them, I'm going to leave you and you cannot come and follow me. He's the one who called them. Lord, you called us. You wanted to spend a relationship with us. We wanted to bury our father. You said, no, come follow me. So here we are. Now you're telling us we can't. We can't follow you. We'll go anywhere you go. But yet you tell us now we can't follow you. That to me would think, they would think that there's something wrong. That they would have fear for that reason. And last week, Brian gave us two concepts to, to think about when, we're, when we have fear like that. Is one, understand that there's always Christians around. That we have a community of faith that we can rely on. That fellowship. And the second is that we have a Christ to trust. We have a, tr- a Christ that we can trust definitively, absolutely, unquestionably. It's this that I want to highlight through our passage today. The Christ that we can trust. He makes a declarative statement in in verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And then he reminds them of something. You believe in in me. You believe in the Father. Believe also in me. This is something you, you did for three years. Do so again. See, Jesus sees the pain and the suffering that we're going through. He sees it. He knows it. He sees down the road where you're going with it. He's not surprised. You can't surprise God or Jesus with your pain, your suffering, your anger, your frustration, your confusion. It's not like he goes, where did that come from? You may do that, but he's not. He's not surprised by it. And he will respond to it. We may not like the response or the timing of the response, but he will respond. A lot of times, the problem is us, or pretty much every time the problem is us, but the fact is, you've got to pay attention. You've got to quiet yourself. Listen to what he's saying to you. The response is appropriate. The response is always appropriate. And he reminds us of what we already know. Believe in the Father. Believe also in me. 
The, the disciples made a choice for salvation in following Christ. That's what he's reminding them of. That's what he's reminding us of. That we made a choice to follow him. To put our fears, our, our sin upon him. And the life that that gives us because of that. We have the opportunity to see how he loved us to the end. The title of our series. He loved us to the end because we can look back and see the empty cross. He loved us that much to die. Now the disciples couldn't see that at the time because he hadn't yet been glorified. He hadn't yet died. That will happen in a few short hours. As we will see in a few short months. But he's telling them, believe. This is what you believe, so keep believing it. In spite of your fear, in spite of your confusion, believe. And he does a really cool thing here that I think you'll find interesting. I know I did as I was thinking about it and preparing. He gives them an analogy in the next verses. Uh, When you look at verses 2 and 3, it says, My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. You see, there's a picture here that we might not understand in our society today, but certainly the disciples would have understood at that time. And it comes down to this. It's a picture of the Jewish betrothal system, if you will how people got married. Now, in today's culture, we meet somebody, we hang out a couple of times, go on some dates, start to develop a a more intimate relationship. Maybe in the world, the worldly people will move in together to see if they're compatible. And that's kind of our system. We see how it goes. Things were very different for the Jewish people at this time. And the disciples would have understood this imagery that Jesus gives them. Now, the imagery is only part of the whole picture of the Jewish betrothal system. And so we kind of start outside of it, but then we bring in what Jesus says, and then we finish as well. And let let me go through it for you so you understand. So you have a gentleman who's interested in marrying a woman. However they met, I don't know. Point is that he, what he's going to do is he's going to leave his father's house, and he's going to go to her house. Spiritual implication is that Jesus leaves his father's house in heaven, and he comes to us. That's how it starts. When the man gets to the father's house, what he ends up doing is he ends up creating or negotiating a marriage covenant, a contract, if you will. And that's what Jesus did with us, creating a marriage contract with us. And what would happen is the the man would then pay immediately whatever they negotiated. Here is whatever the amount or the goods or some property, whatever it may be, here it is immediately. Jesus did that on the cross. And what's interesting is that when that payment was transacted, that man and that woman were at that point considered husband and wife. At that point, they were husband and wife. When we believe on the transaction of Christ on the cross and his death and resurrection... We are his bride immediately. We have faith. We are saved at that moment. We don't have to wait for a period of time. We don't have to wait for Jesus to come back to know that we're saved. We're saved then. The bride and the groom, 
or the husband and wife would then drink wine from a cup in sort of a celebratory form. And a, a marriage pronouncement or marriage blessing was, was made. This is a picture of the communion, the cup of the new covenant that, that Christ made with us. Something new has been created here. And at that point, then, the groom leaves. Leaves his wife to live her life for the next year at her father's house. He goes back to his house to prepare a place. This is where our text picks up. Because Jesus has been ascended to heaven. He goes to prepare a place for us, his bride, for all of you who believe. And then, after the prescribed year, although for us, it's been 2,000 years so far. So, the analogy breaks down there. But, here's the thing. We think he's, his return is imminent. So did the first century believers. They thought his return was imminent. We don't know. We don't know when he's coming. And at the same time, the bride who is waiting for her, her husband, she really doesn't know. She has an idea. He's coming back in a year. But she doesn't know exactly what time, and it's not like he gets on his phone and says, hey, I'm on my way. Be there soon. No. He and his groomsmen walk to go get her. And when they go there, again, they, don't have, they didn't have a telegram or something to, to send ahead. Some of you have no idea what a telegram is. My apologies. A note. <laughs> a letter. Um, but they would, as they neared her place, they would shout to announce their arrival. We see that picture for Jesus Christ as well. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. He will return with a shout, just as the wedding party goes to collect the, the wife with a shout. Again, this is something that the disciples would have been familiar with. And as he's telling them that he's going to prepare a place for them, they're probably gaining an understanding of how much he really loves them. The wedding party would then return to the, the groom's father's house with the wife. And that is, the second, that is us being raised with Christ to heaven, being caught up with him. That is the picture that he gives them. Now, they don't understand that. They won't understand that in its full entirety yet because he has yet to be glorified in death. But he's letting them know, hey, this is what's going to happen. And at some point, it will make sense to you. We have the, option, the ability to look back and see that, the reality of that. What a comforting picture to see how much Jesus loves us, that he would take it all the way Love us to the end. Now, there are times that we go through darkness, that life is hard. For some, it's harder than others. I'm, I'm fortunate that I, my life has not been all that hard. I'm not afraid to say that because I don't feel that there's karma. There isn't. My life is as however God has ordained it. But the thing is, I know I will have dark times. And how do I respond to those? Do I respond in fear and confusion? Well, there'll probably be some sentiment of that, absolutely. 
because I'm a human being here on earth. But what I want is to be able to say that I know that God is coming back for me. I, I found in the Song of Songs, or in some Bibles I call it the Song of Solomon, the book, chapter 6, verse 3 says this, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. I am my beloved's. I belong to him. He desired a relationship with me. And he came and enacted and, and affected that relationship. And my beloved is mine. When I go through the dark times of my life, I want this to be true of me. I want to say, I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine, in spite of my circumstances. And here's what I'm going to say to all of you out there. I give you permission. I give you permission to question me in those dark times. Do you live with that mindset that you are your beloved and that you love him? If you see me going through a tough time, I give you the, the right to ask me that because I need that. You need that. We all need that of each other to remind each other of who we are and who we love and who loves us. Jesus used the betrothal image as, as a love reminder of his love for us. How incredible that really is. We have a great transition, I think, really from this calming of fears that Jesus is using with the image to a reminder of the truth that we see in the second section of our passage. In verse 4, he says, you know the place to where I'm going. But Thomas, in verse 5, is, seems confused. And, and he says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answers in, with a verse that is widely quoted, especially in evangelistic circles. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. This is an incredible statement. I think it is. You see, this is a foundational truth for all of Scripture, let alone our passage today. <clears throat> Jesus didn't promise to show us a way. He is the way. He's not just going to go, oh, you're going to go over there. No, you come to me. You come to me because I am the way. I, me, Jesus. No one else. Me. I am. Definitively, absolutely, unquestionably. Not maybe, not might be. I am the way. The only way. Matthew 7 uh, talks about how the gate is wide and the path is broad that leads to destruction but also how the gate is narrow and the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And only a few find it. Because Jesus is the only way. One. One way. Through Jesus Christ. Other religions do offer some kind of connection to a higher power. But they don't offer reconciliation to your Creator. To God. Wow. 
Why would you want that? Why would you want a connection only in name, nominally, with your Creator? Oh yeah, we're, we, we know each other. Do you? There seems to be a lot of strife in the world because people think that there's a different way. We're going to talk about that in a little bit as well. John 10, verse 9 says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. I am the door. He will be saved. Saved from our sin. Saved from our eternal separation from God because of our sin. Believe on that transaction of what Christ did on the cross for you. Repent of your sin. You will become his bride immediately. You will be saved. For a non-believer, knowing that Jesus is the way, it's a question of salvation. Salvation from your sin. Salvation from an eternal separation from God. For those of us who do believe, sometimes we lose our way. But Jesus is the way. And so we can gain direction and guidance because of Him. Because of His Word. Because of the fellowship that we have around us. That's why we talk about being strengthened. That's why we have the small groups. For that help. Also, Jesus didn't promise to just teach us the truth. He did teach the truth. But He is the truth. He is the truth. The only truth. He is the absolute truth. The world today does not like that term absolute. Everything is relative. That's good for you, but that's not really good for me. No, it is good for you. You just refuse to admit it. It's more than good for you. It's perfect for you. Because He was the perfect sacrifice. The only perfect sacrifice that exists. Any other sacrifice isn't sufficient in God's eyes. You believe on that. It's either you believe and you gain heaven or you don't and you don't. You gain hell. It's a binary construct. Ones and zeros. Either is or isn't. There's no room for gray on that. That's God's word. John chapter 1, verse 14 says this. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. 1 John 5.20 reiterates this. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true by being in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. He is the truth. For the non-believer, trying to figure out what truth is, you've got to start with the basics. Who's God? Start there. What is sin? What is love, really? Get together with someone you trust. You've got to learn the basics. For those of us who believe, sometimes we get confused. We're faced with options. What do I do here? Seek Scripture and get help. I guarantee you the elders would love to help you with your problems. That's their job. And they know it. If you have questions, 
You can ask me. You can ask anyone you see who preaches up here. We might not know the answers, but we can direct you to someone who can. Additionally, Jesus didn't promise to provide a secret to life. It's not like he said, Psst, I have a secret for you about life. No. He is the life. Period. He is our life. He is why we are the way we are as believers. He is why we decide to do the things we do. Now, we still struggle. You know, <clears throat> I do like books, and occasionally I, I go to the bookstore. Not that there's many of those left around, unfortunately. But <clears throat> I do like to wander around when I'm there, which I probably spend too much time there when I do go because I get lost in the magazines or books or whatever. But there's a lot of self-help books out there. Now, self-help books in and of themselves aren't evil, aren't bad things. But as a believer in Christ, this is our book. Not self-help, because we can't help ourselves. This is God's book, because he's the one who helps us. This is the book that we need. Now, there are nuggets of wisdom, however, in some of the self-help books. That's fair enough. There was one that uh, <clears throat> I read a few years ago by a Christian woman. Uh, her name was uh, Chantel Hobbs. <clears throat> Excuse me. And she wrote a book called Never Say Diet. Now, some of you are thinking, oh, okay. Tell me more. Um, obviously, it's a book about dieting for weight loss. She was someone who dealt with weight issues her life, through her life. But what was interesting that she noted was dieting is something that people do for a period of time. They stop dieting, they gain the weight back, and that's the yo-yo effect. Diet, lose the weight. Go off the diet, gain the weight. Diet, lose the weight. Up and down, up and down. And her epiphany was, let me go on a diet and never go off of it. I'll just change the way I do things, the way I eat, what I eat, how I prepare, whatever. And she lost uh, something over 200 pounds and has kept it off. That was her experience. It's not going to be everyone's experience, but the point is this. That when she decided to make a change in her mindset, she changed her behavior. That's what Christ does for us. He changes who we are and so the decisions we make in life change automatically. We're not faced with certain decisions anymore because we don't even put ourselves in a position to have to make those tough decisions. When I was in college, before I knew Christ, I went out and partied every weekend. Didn't think anything of it. But when Christ came into my life, I didn't want to do that anymore. And there were issues at parties that I had that I never had to worry about again because I wasn't going to the parties. That's what Christ does for us. He gives us a new way to think, a new way to believe about ourselves. 1 Corinthians 15.45 says, So it is written, The first Adam became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. A life-giving spirit. The greatest example that I saw in Scripture of this is the Apostle Paul. 
where prior to his encounter with Jesus Christ, he was a Jew of Jews, as he calls himself, persecuting the church. He was better at it than anyone else because he wanted to be better at it than anyone else. And then he had an encounter with Christ who said, why are you persecuting me? And that changed his life forever. Completely flipped him around. To the point where in Galatians 2.20 he says this, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is a different mindset than his life prior to Christ where he wanted to kill. Now he's trying to give life to other people, to the Gentile believers. His desire is to glorify God where before it was to crush God. He made good choices. That's life. That's what life in Christ is about. Being able to make good choices. Again, to the non-believer, you can have an abundant life, but only in Christ. You can make good choices. You have the access to make good choices constantly. Apart from Christ, you may make good choices from time to time. But even still, you're not glorifying God, which is the purpose of humanity, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To those of us who do believe, there are times when life gets us down and we are beaten. We don't know what, which end is up. Many years ago when I was in middle school, I felt so alone, so completely alone in my life. I wanted to kill myself. I hated my life. Now, this was before I knew Christ, and thanks be to God that in spite of that fact, He didn't let that happen. I will honestly tell you, there are still times in my life as an adult that I feel very alone. That I have felt that same sense of loneliness and that crushingness that that I felt. But now, I just throw it away. That's a thought that Satan puts in my head and just, get out of here. I'm not interested. I can do that because of what Christ did in my life because of how he changed my heart, how I look at the world now. I have joy because of what he has said and done in my life. The second part of verse 6 in chapter 14. No one comes to the Father but through me. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one has the opportunity for this life that Christ offers apart from Jesus. It is not possible. Again, God set up His standard and that's the way it is. A lot of people in the world would tell you that this is intolerant. Not really. Because it's open to anybody. I don't follow rules as a believer in Christ. I make choices because of Christ. Those choices fall in line with what God would want. That's the difference. That's the inclusion, though. Anyone can have this. 
life. Everyone can have it. His death was sufficient for everyone. And he wants these guys to, to take heart, to understand that I love you. And he wants them to remember what they already know. The second part of our passage basically is all about, hey, you guys, you've been forgetting who I am. There's some confusion. In verse uh, 7, he says, If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you you do know him and have seen him. And Philip is a little confused. In verse 8, he says, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And so Christ recognizes the, the confusion here, and he kind of, in a soft way, rebukes him. Through verses, a couple of verse, uh, sections of verse 9 and 10, he says, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? And further down, how, do you, how can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? After three years, have you not seen this? But then he goes on to remind them in the same verses. He says, anyone, in verse 9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And then in verse 10, the words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Verse 11, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe in the evidence of the works themselves. Even if you're struggling to understand what I'm telling you, look at what I've done. You can see, remember, you know this. You know this. You know salvation. Because what we need to understand is he's about to send these people out because he's going away. He has to prepare them to be the apostles. Apostle meaning messenger, one who is sent. You guys are going out soon. They don't know that yet. But he's preparing them to send them out. But they have to remember what they already know. We have to remember what we already know about Christ and our life in him. Because there's that larger truth that they have the power and authority given to them and, and they're going to get the Holy Spirit. And Chuck is, or Chuck is going to talk about that next week. We see that in verses 12 and 13. That they have that ability. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And, the, and they will do even greater things than these. Because I am in the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name. So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You will do great things. Remember what you already know. And you will do great things. Verse 14 finishes it. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. I will do it. When we ask God for anything, we're asking out of the life that he's given us. We're asking to see him glorify himself. That's what we want. That's what we should want. Take comfort. Jesus is your groom. He is your husband. He is coming back for us. As dark as things may seem for you right now, remember, He is coming back. Take comfort in knowing that. And don't forget who He is 
and the access that you have to God because of that. Because you made a decision to follow Christ, to repent of your sin and to follow Christ, to believe in His death on the cross as your death and who you are in Him because of Him. Remember your purpose. You will make good choices. And you will live a victorious life. Let's pray. Father, I just thank You so much for who You are and what it is You're doing in in our lives. I pray that You would really bring this message to roost in our lives, that we would leave here looking changed with a desire and, a, and to, to glorify you. Help us to take comfort in you and to remember you in, in all of our, in every minute of our lives, whether good or bad, so that you may be glorified and that we may make the right choice in glorifying you by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.